Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. Here we are, session 12, Buddhism for Beginners, using Jack Cornfield's program on Audible as as a backdrop for this. Uh, Here you three beautiful people are, 9 o'clock in the morning on October 17th, and this is it. This is the wrap-up, and we're going to tackle his last one, session 12, where he talks about the last teachings of the Buddha. I'm here with Anthony Miller, Jana Spangler, and Brittany Hartley. Uh, how are the three of you guys all doing? Good, Bill. Great. Thanks. Fantastic. Awesome. Awesome. This has been so much fun. Uh, somebody I know, and I consider him a friend, but I've only met him a few times, but I'm aware of work that him and his wife do out there and in helping relationships and helping people. In our last episode, I was talking about I hope that this has impact on people. And, and I know we've gotten some positive feedback, but you know, the, the space I normally am in and the space you three are normally in conversating, not all of that crowd jumps over to this space. And, and so it's a little sad to me that people don't take advantage. Cause this to me is where the real uh, meat is right. Like milk before meat, forget milk. Now we're, now we're eating the T-bone steak right here. And, uh, but he reached out to me and he's also in that other space. And, uh, sent me a long email and just said how grateful he was for the work that the three of you joining me and having these conversations, what uh, what we did through all of this. And we, I think we really laid out a second half of life path that people can chew on and uh, and really make steady little steps of improvement day after day, month after month, year after year. And it's been so good for me. Um, so let's open it up session 12, the last teachings of the Buddha, and let's just kind of see where this goes and, uh, see if we can't give this topic some closure and, and pull a few more beautiful truths out along the way. Any thoughts from the three of you to kind of get us started? I don't really have a, a jumping off point. Um, anything in the first 11 or in this session that, that stood out to you or things that are on your mind? I'll, I'll jump in. Oh, darn it. Okay. I w- always want to go last, but, um, <laughs> What I want to say is my my wife and I were, I, I'm in a mixed faith marriage to a certain degree, and but my wife and I have really enjoyed sharing this audiobook and talking about it. And we usually do it on long drives. And yesterday we drove from Springville, uh, Utah, through Logan to see our son and his partner uh, to Billings uh, through Big Sky and part of Yellowstone and so forth. And we were listening to this episode and, and we were talking about it. And, and I expressed that um, to a certain extent frustration and that when I was going through my faith deconstruction and trying to make sense of things, um, I had people time and time again suggest to me the secular application of Buddhist principles to listen to Eckhart Tolle, to listen to Noir Rochetta. Um, I might even even had someone suggest Jack Kornfield um, during that. And it took some time for me to go ahead and decide to listen to it and read it and engage with it and so forth. And it's been vital to my experience of being able to sit with a greater sense of confidence and peace as to what I've gone through during these last five to six years, um, as well as to be able to more productively engage with people who have very differentiated beliefs uh, and so forth. And and uh, I mentioned that, Bill, you had shared that of all the material in which you've participated and produced, that this might be among the most valuable, but it doesn't hasn't received about the same remotely close to the same amount of downloads as some of the other material. And my wife and I are visiting, visiting about, and she says, well, some people just aren't 
ready for it. And what that triggered in my mind is how many times Eckhart Tolle says in A New Earth that that this is this material, some people just aren't ready for it. They, they have to be ready for it. Like you can't compel people to engage with it. You can't, I mean, you can, you can offer it as an invitation, like metaphorically offering your hand. But in the end, this very valuable information, this journey that we've been on, these discussions that we've had, someone really has to be ready for it before they engage with it. And perhaps that's why people just aren't ready for it. And that's why we haven't had the level of downloads that other material has. Yeah, this, this isn't woo-woo. Um, so many things that are uh, offered to us through our life are... Are, are fictitious there. And, and yet as I've dove into this stuff and I've read a new earth as well and other, you know, other things along these lines, and it just seems so applicable. It seems so real. It, um, it feels like something that like we all should just grab onto and, and be a better version of ourselves. And there's so much, um, I, I was in a conversation with friends a couple of days ago and they were talking about how hard this work is. Like it is exhausting. And I looked over and I said, yeah, but you, you don't have any choice, but to keep doing it. Do you? And and she was like, no, I don't. I have to keep doing it. And I said, I know. I said, working on me became the most interesting thing, like to work on myself and to uh, be, try to be aware um, constantly uh, and to constantly keep screwing it up and then to kind of refocus again and to be in that wisdom mind and treating everyone around me the best way that moment would allow has become the most interesting thing in my life to do. And I don't know what else to do, but do this. This is the thing I'm doing and everything else is secondary. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling. Well, I'll, I'll just jump on this. Um, I noticed this hesitation in the post-Mormon community as well. And um, it reminds me of a story that, you know, many people know that I, I spent two years studying with Richard Rohr. One of the stories he told was, was uh, about a visit he made to India, and he um, he he asked his guide um, about atheism in India, and the guide said, "We don't have atheists in India." And then he waited for a minute, and he said, "Oh, wait, unless they were Christian first. And I think there's something to that, and I think there's something to people who have been raised in a tradition that is uh, very closed. This is it. We have it. Um, this is exact. We're going to define for you who God is. We're going to define for you all of, um, of what the, you know, what the teachings are and what you're supposed to believe. And when people, for one reason or another, don't fit that, when it doesn't match their soul and they find themselves being pulled out of that, they're naturally leery of what is the next guru? What is the next person who um, is going to lead me down the primrose path? You know, there's this almost this natural inclination that we need to trust ourselves. And I, I will say, I think even the teachings of the Buddha can become this. And, and Jack actually mentioned this in this, that the Buddha warns them that this should not become their new thing, their, their dharma. They, they need to take, they need to not cling even to the dharma. So I think there's this thing in Western Christianity. I definitely see it in the in the post-religious, you know, community when people are trying to find themselves that that really pushes back 
on some new thing. And I think that's wise. And I actually think it's what the Buddha was pointing to in this, in not making some other thing your new thing. (laughs) Like this needs to be an inner journey. And I think that's what second half of life is about. That's that's what we're pointing to here. So I, I understand people's hesitation. I get it. Like it, it takes a minute. I think another reason that this is just so <clears throat> perfect for a second half of life is, you know, it starts, we started with life is suffering. That's the, that's where we start. And there's actually some studies even that show that Buddhism may not be, um, the best starting point for children because children need to be growing an ego and an identity and Buddhism isn't really kind of keyed for that. Um, But when you go to second half of life where you need to kind of chill out your ego and you are suffering because now you have an ego that's competing and you're at work trying to be competitive and you're comparing yourself to other people and on and on and on, you kind of have to Um, it's like a hamster. You kind of have to get tired on that wheel in order to be open to like, is there a better way to like be in the world? Because like, I'm exhausted being a hamster on this wheel. And I think sometimes you just kind of have to experience that and burn yourself out from that process before you're kind of open to a new way of being. And that may not happen when you're eight years old and just there's unicorns and rainbows and you're just trying to figure out what your favorite food is. You know, Buddhism may not be the best tool for that age group. But if you feel like as an adult, you're a hamster running on a wheel and you're not really happy, Buddhism is a great tool for kind of that phase of life. Yeah, I um, I was thinking about, you guys keep mentioning Christianity and, and this kind of outer authority and inner authority thing that goes on. And so often, you know, you know, you just mentioned, you guys mentioned that uh, Christians perhaps maybe have a harder time picking up this path because they're constantly pointed to an outside source, right? When Jesus, and I think it's in John 8, 12, where Jesus says, I am the life and light of the world. What I'm reminded by in session 12 is the light is inside you, right? The light, the light is inside you. It's not, it's not in another guru. There are people and we all have we all have some sort of wisdom within us that is valuable to be shared with the world so that the world can learn something that is individual to us but we shouldn't set ourselves up as the expert for anyone you're the expert for you go dig inside you and go figure it out and buddhism constantly tries to tell you that you are the end of the road stops with you the work is inside you um whereas i think whether it's Islam or Judaism or uh, Christianity, those monotheistic religions continually point you to an outside source as well as others too. And uh, it is, it's almost like you're right, Britt, like Jesus, Jesus is a better model for the, let's say 25 and under crowd. And then at some point uh, when your brain matures a little bit and develops a little bit and you can think differently, Somebody needs to come along and shift you over to doing the work inside yourself and to stop looking at outside authorities. But by then you've already got that established. And if you become disappointed with that, if you don't become disappointed with that, you stay in that forever and you don't know any other way. And if you become disappointed with that, you believe that all the other systems are just, are just going to do the same thing to you. And, and so you don't really gravitate towards it. I think so, I so say than one- like, go ahead, you go, Jenna. Oh, I just wanted to say one thing about that, about, you know, Jesus being a a good teacher for the first, you know, 25 years. Um, You know, I I studied with contemplative Christians. And in that, I would say this, there are many in that crowd who 
actually see Jesus as a second half of life teacher. That it's just that first half of life people have commandeered Jesus <laughs> and made <laughs> made yes. Jesus's teachings into something he wasn't trying to teach. You know, no. we've we've somehow made Jesus the the policeman in the sky, and this was not a guy who was a rule follower, particularly to you know his his religious authorities of his time. And so, um, I rec- highly recommend the book, The Wisdom Jesus. It will give you a whole different view of what second half of life Jesus could be, because I think that you know Western Christianity is maybe that first half of life, but Jesus really points to a lot of second half of life. If there's my, have there's ears my to hear book. it. Yeah, there's my next book on Audible. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, we we tease when we when we go through this transition to second half of life, we can we can witness and tease out of the Jesus story these kinds of things, right? So one of the first stories that we'll get into in this discussion is at the end of the Buddha's life, um, this this uh, state of conflict and war that was happening in, in the area. And they go to the Buddha and they, and they, and the King or something like that, ask the Buddha about whether they should go to war with their enemies. And instead of answering whether uh, in a, in an authoritarian way, whether or not they should go to war, then he brings up all these other things that come to the effect of things or the root causes that would cause people to come to war. And in a similar way, the Christi- Western Christianity that we grow up with is authoritarian. There are people who are intermediaries in between us and the divine, between us and God, that we need them, that we rely on them. And then we tease these other stories out of Jesus, like if we want to become part of the kingdom of God, he shares this this uh, parable of the sheep and the goats, that if we either literally or metaphorically feed the hungry and visit the sick and the imprisoned and shelter the stranger and 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 we clothe the naked and we do these things that we are part of the kingdom of God now in in this moment and we didn't need any authorities to do that we di- we didn't need any intermediaries to connect with and be part of the kingdom of God now we just needed it was inside us all along and the we kingdom of God is within you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. oh man um, I'll tell you, I really, I really have only been applying this stuff for a few years and it was such a gradual lean in. And in the last year, it just, it almost, it almost is, I wake up in the morning and there's some pep in my step and, uh, I'm just excited to see how I get to practice it today. And it, uh, last night, I, again, I'm, I'm always, I, I share these partly cause I'm really proud of myself, right? Like there's this non-Buddhist arrogance, right? Like that goes, I should just keep my mouth shut and just let it be an example of itself as it happens. But I'm at a party last night. Uh, we're sitting at, uh, there's a firehouse converted into a bar and a bunch of us go out. We call it the outer darkness drinking club. And, uh, I'm there and I, I just, I made it a point. I went to the thing and I said, oh, I'll share something when something comes to my mind. But for the most part, I just want to show other people that I'm interested in them. I want to hear what they have to say. I want to be wise in how I talk in a large group because you're often interrupting one person in order to give someone else voice, right? Or you're or you're having to cut one person off to to kind of allow that other person to kind of come forward. And I just wanted to go into it, like trying to be as healthy as I could. And I went on the way home and I'm talking to my wife and I'm like, I feel like I nailed it, babe. I like I, every moment I was, I was, I was doing what I needed to do in that moment. I was where I needed to be. And I was talking to who I needed to talk to. And I, um, at the end of the night, 
two different people came up and said, I really appreciated my conversation with you. It was, it was the time during the night where I really felt heard and felt like I, I was being seen. And uh, I just got all, all giddy inside. Like I was, I was succeeding at it. Cause so often I went through my life messed up inside and traumatizing those around me, trying to sort out my insides. And now that like I, in these moments, I just, I'm okay. Like I feel good about me. I'm all right. Um, I'm, I'm just, I like the me that's showing up versus the me that was 10 years ago or 15 years ago was kind of an asshole and kind of a, kind of so un excuse me, so unhealthy that I was screaming at the world to, to diminish its chaos. Meanwhile, I was really the chaos. I was it. Um, anyway, I sound really bragging and I, I am, but it, it really is just so much fun to kind of watch this stuff happen. It's bragging about the teachings, though, that the teachings can have a strong impact on your life and do something to the chaos within, which is, that's really wise. That's wisdom. And, and I'll point out that is actually a piece of what I took from the Buddha's last teachings, which is really the theme, right, of this 12th lecture of Jack Kornfield, was that, that it, it, this is how we bring about peace in the world, is by doing this inner work individually all over the world. Like if you, you do have to become that peace that you want to see in the world. I mean, we hear that phrase a lot and it sounds trite, but to Bill's point, if you're out screaming at all the systems, trying to get everybody to change, that really isn't the way we do it. You do it by, uh, by having this inner peace, this inner development, and then bringing a more whole self to the world that then heals other people. This is, this is how we heal the world is, is by bringing a better self to it. Yeah. And, and, and I experienced that in this particular episode is there was, there were these different stories about the end of the Buddha's life, but they were all seemed to be metaphor um, or a roadmap of the kinds of things that we can do to be, to reveal the Buddha nature that's within us. And so it wasn't, it wasn't about, adoration of the buddha and in fact where there was adoration of the buddha that's where there were problems it was more of revealing the buddha nature that's inside of us that, that not 100 percent, but that's kind of what i got out of this episode and also the teachings that that came out of this were spurred on by people who were trying to make it all about the buddha they were really sad to see him die they were really scared about what they do when their guru is gone Right. And and I think that's human nature too, to to that we want to cling to the things. You know, I when I find someone that is speaking something that I really love, I have a tendency to put them on a pedestal. I have a tendency to put them in a place where no human deserves to be, actually. And eventually, the more you get to know any guru, anyone, every guru has to fall. <laughs> and they will. If you know someone well enough. You will know. I mean, I remember even at the living school, listening to some of the staff talk about working with Richard Rohr, where all of us are like, oh, his teachings are so amazing. Richard's perfect. you know. And then they talk about how difficult <laughs> actually Richard can be to work with. You know, I, it's This is the truth, but we all have this ability. And I think it's important to notice that in ourselves. Who are we making our next guru? Who are we putting on a pedestal? What voices are we saying? Well, they must have it all figured out. You know? The truth is, and I think the Buddha was was resistant to that, as Anthony was saying. Like the Buddha was resistant, saying, "No, th you all have this inside you. This is not about me. The Dharma goes on. Don't 
don't cling to any of it. Yeah. There, there are so many uh, contemplative voices and, you know, I, I went off after I got done listening to it again this morning, I went and found some extra material that was talking about the Buddha's last days. And when he died, um, the, his caretaker kind of sensed that he was getting old and it was coming. And then he, he went and, you know, the story again was he went and laid between some trees and he passed away. But then some of his disciples were, as you're pointing out, Jana, were like, oh my goodness, we missed his last moments. Like he was going to tell us the great secret. And and what Buddha was saying based on the story, those those last days and weeks was that when I'm gone, like as long as you guys are keep thinking these things and keep uh, pondering these thoughts and wrestling with this idea of being present and uh, and being your best self uh, and working kind of towards, it, even though obviously in any moment none of us are, um, th- like the thing goes on, it, it, the teachings continue, and it seems as though as you're pointing out too, like every time a great guru dies, there's a panic on what happens afterward. Even in our faith tradition, as unhealthy as it ha- it was. There's this great battle after the death of the founder to try to figure out how you pick up the pieces and move on. And uh, you can sense, like, Buddha's gone. He's died a long time ago, um, at least the man who, who first was Buddha. And yet you've got people like Eckhart Tolle or Richard Rohr. Um, I think even other, you know, there's so many voices. Uh, I always think of John Shelby Spong or uh, in our own tradition, Thomas McConkie, uh, who who. I think was the first voice I heard kind of sharing this kind of idea within Mormonism. And uh, the voices are out there and they will be out there forever. Uh, as soon as you grab onto it and start realizing the work is inside you, there's the Buddha. There he is. Yeah. Such good stuff. Um, so tagging on to what yeah. Jana was talking about um, in terms of the guru or the substitute pro, well, you know, what's the, who's going to be our next prophet or whatnot. Jack, uh, refers to the poet Rumi and quotes him with uh, what Rumi wrote. What is this fuss we make when we will go one by one through the same gate? You know, we we all we all will die. We'll all go through the same gate. There's not a different gate that other people get to go through. It's all the same. Yeah, it I love um, when I when I traveled to Thailand to to study Buddhism for a little bit. Um, there's lots of statues that represent different parts of Buddha's life. And a lot of them are him laying down. And I just really loved, um, I really loved that symbolism being a part of kind of the culture of statues of Buddha laying down. Um, he kind of has his head on, on his hand and he's laying down. Sometimes he's strewn in gold <clears throat> as part of the statue. And I just love that idea that there's a beauty to a life well lived and there's a beauty towards facing death gracefully um, and that he didn't die in a great palace, um, which he could have, he could have chosen to, um, but he died, you know, just in a simple village between two trees. Um, and it, it's just such a contrast when you look at the silly things that we humans do simply because we're afraid of death. You know, when you look at the pyramids and all that we do to, to, uh, you know, the, the pharaohs would do to be preserved and, other rooms and the journey and the whole deal. Um, you know, I just look at it and I, and I just think, you know, these are just men who are afraid of death. And I, or you watch someone like Picasso, you know, this great artist and to his last, he would not talk about what was to happen with his things when he died because he literally could not face death. And he kept painting till the day that he died. Um, and he, he couldn't face it. He couldn't look at it and he ran from it 
un- until he died. And there's a certain sadness about that. And so not only does Buddhism help one to live, as you know, Bill's attested to, and we've ha- talked to talked about these these twelve episodes. There's just a certain amount of grace um, to lay down between two trees and just let it go. And that it, it it's scary, you know. You can feel that. You can feel that come up in you. But but there's a beauty about um, just being grateful that you were able to be alive, and then just letting it letting it go and letting it pass, and not having to. Uh, cling to things even in our death as we're facing our death you know so many of us are just still clinging to something and how uh, how much more peaceful it would be to just be able to let go so it was interesting yeah and if you're if, if thinking about your death in the present moment is distracting you from being present and enjoying like here's a good moment right here like if you if you spend your and again I'm not saying that thinking about death at all times is a negative so I think sometimes it actually is a positive, but sometimes it, uh, the cares of the world can occupy our emotional energy to the point where we are treating this moment as if it's already the past. And I think when we sit present with this moment and tr- and, and let it be alive, um, death's going to come at some point anyway. Like like let's just do the best we can with this moment we've got. And when that moment comes, we'll deal with that moment. And as we've said multiple times in these conversations, there's a little bit of me that's starting to get interested in what it'll be like to be present in that moment. And uh, it, it makes for a pretty interesting mental exercise sometimes when I'm meditating upon that. And uh, there's some places you can go where you can still do this, where you go to a monastery and you sit with varying forms of human decay you know, someone, someone, you just sit next to someone who's been dead a week or a year or 10 years. And uh, it really sucks some perspective into your life real fast. And there's even an app now where, you know, you get reminded five, five times a day that you're going to (laughs) die. And some people find that some people find that a little bit too much, but some people actually find a lot of perspective in their life. Um, and really just holding on to the to the divinity of each moment and each person because because it breaks the illusion that you know we're all running around trying to be better like you said we're all going to go through the same door like let's let's love and let's um be so grateful at at what this is because it's not going to last forever and for some people they find that incredibly um liberating i'm not sure how much i would want to do that but it's an interesting idea that that past that door of kind of fear there's a lot of liberation Mm. so can i bring up kind of a of a paradox i i uh, in this last teaching this that kind of I noticed within myself as I as I'm kind of taking in these last words of the Buddha because you know like you Bill I I agree like when I've taken on more of this contemplative stance in life it it is paying fruits for sure I'm feeling it in my life it's 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 a good thing and I love how the Buddha points to that inner journey and <laughs> I also had this feeling and I I did a little reading on his last teachings as well and. And there's also this thing of, well, just follow all of my teachings and go be a monk and just do that, you know, which is again, kind of pointing to there's one way there's, there's kind of this paradoxical thing in there. And I don't know, maybe that's also people who have followed up the Buddha, just like we've interpreted Jesus in first half of life ways. I'm sure there are people who interpret the Buddha in first half of life ways and say, nope, this is the way, 
Um, but I, I have to say that in my experience in contemplative circles, and I think we had a big example of this in just in our politics and in our year last year, where some of these teachings, it's a beautiful teaching that we all have Buddha nature. We are all equal. We all like Ruby says, go through the same door of death. We're all, you know, and, and this this fills us with such joy that we're all equal. It feels so good. And I think it's a reality that many people in this world, marginalized groups, have not had the chance to form any ego in order to let it go. And I've noticed this, this wrestle going on in contemplative uh, communities where these teachings themselves can be um, an outcropping of privilege. And so, you know, I think it's notable that the Buddha was a man. You know, we've got these kind of male teachings of strict posture, and this is how we do this, and and um, and let's just get rid of the ego. All the male gurus are always telling us to let go of the ego. But I, I as a woman, I am actually finding that it's important for me to strengthen the self. I need to strengthen the self. I need to be affirmed. And, and we see this in the whole, you know, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter. I think some really pure of heart people say All Lives Matter and don't understand why it's hurtful because it kind of points to this, this teaching of the Buddha that we all have Buddha nature and we're, we're, we can all have enlightenment and that feels really good. But when you have not been affirmed in your life, when your ego has not been built sufficiently, it, it may not be time for you to do the work of letting go of the ego. So I just feel like I need to mention that because it is a real wrestle in the real world that we deal with when the rubber hits the road, when we try to talk about these kinds of things with other people. If, if people's lives have not been affirmed, it is hurtful to tell them that we're all equal, even though hopefully that's where we can all get to. Hopefully we can affirm people enough and people can affirm themselves enough that we can get to the place where we're there, that we've got, we've got a lot of human nature to get through to get to that point. So. Just a disclaimer and something I'm wrestling with with all of this. I think I think Buddha would have loved that. I think he would have loved someone saying like, hey, there's some limitations here. Like, you know, let's not cling to this so hard because there are limitations. And Buddha was one man in one kind of way of life that like I can't wake up and just ask my neighbors for food every day. Like I have a family of six to, to tend for. And that sometimes calls for a different kind of way of life. And so I, I, I think that that's wise to just say, um, you know, these are tools. And that's what he says, right? That that when someone asks, what should I do with Buddha teachings? Use it as a raft on the river. You know, it's just going to take you from one place of entanglement to a place of more liberation. Um, but it's not it's not the boat, you know, it's the journey, like you're saying, Jenna. And so for me, what this has been is, I think, I think the reason so many people who were grown up in Western religion finds, find it so interesting to get into Eastern religion is because it feels like the other half of us, right? So that's, that's what I found for me is, is as I'm studying, you know, I'm a history teacher, I'm into philosophy, I'm studying what humans are. And if you only stay on this half of the world, that's kind of one side of humanity. And there are great gems in, in Jesus and even in, in, in Christianity and um, the structure that we do and um, there even the separation of church and state that we get in Christianity, which is just incredibly profound. There are so many gems on this side of kind of the human experience. 
Um, but there, the other half of me feels like was found, um, on the, on the other side of the world that just kind of had a, a different approach because their mystic was, was Buddha rather than, rather than Abraham. And it, it just feels like it's the other half of me. So it's not that I'm just switching over from Western religion to Eastern religion. And now I'm a Buddhist. It just feels like another part of me and another part of humanity, another part of the wisdom that humanity has to offer that has been found and I can apply it to my life in various ways, and it just feels more complete. But I don't have to let go of all the gems that I've found before, and I don't have to become a monk, you know. And even when you go to Buddhist countries, you know, there's prosperity gospel, there's, um, you know, female monks have to do a lot more than male monks, there's still a lot of patriarchy. So there's still genuine problems in the world, there's, you know, there are limitations. It's not going to be, you know, if you're looking for a perfect guidebook that's going to tell you step by step how to live your life, you know, it's not going to it's not going to be that for you, but it is it is a boat. It is a tool that helps you from the side of entanglement to the side of liberation. And and it, it's a part of human wisdom that we're missing out on if you only stay on the side of um what the western world and what the Western wisdom gems have to offer. So I just feel a lot more complete um, when I take those two parts of myself and curate the best of it. Um, to me, it just feels whole because there is kind of a Western and an Eastern part of humanity. And when you can combine them both, it just feels very whole. I, I love that so much. You're speaking my language, Brittany, because you know I'm an integral professional coach, which most of us have absolutely no idea what that means. But integral talks about integration of of all of these things you know the seeing the polarities the and and bringing it all together into wholeness which so i just absolutely love everything you're saying and there's a there's a phrase in that comes from that community it was originally um transcend and include but um there are some circles that are starting to flip that to include and transcend um you know when we learn something new you don't have to throw out every everywhere you came from you know, you may rail against it for a while. That's natural part of development as well. But, you know, see what you want to include and and see what what philosophies out there, what teachers out there, what resonates with you, take what works for you, leave what what doesn't. And I just really feel like this would be such uh, a different world if we were able to honor that journey in ourselves and in everybody else. That if we stopped thinking that there was one way, you know, there there's more than one path to the top of Mount Fuji, as the saying goes. And I think that that map is written in the soul of every every person. And, you know, but it's difficult. We want to have one way to do it that feels good. And we want everyone else to come with us. <laughs> so we're, we're fighting our own human nature in all of that. Yeah, <clears throat> it seems I, I was just having this thought as the two of you ladies were talking and this idea that, um, and we've expressed it so many times, right? We are one with everything. So here's the universe experiencing 7.6 billion different consciousnesses at this moment. And not only that, but it's all the, I'm going to probably slur the word, but consciousnesses uh, to come and the ones behind us. <clears throat> it reminds me, and I'm, again, I don't know that I've got my facts straight, but I think it's Hinduism, isn't it? Where, is it uh, Vishnu or Krishna? Uh, he's basically God, and he's 
dreaming and he's imagining all of the possibilities. And that's where we are, is we're one of those possibilities living out in his dream. And I like that analogy because if you think of it that way, like all of us are extensions of this creative force in the universe, and we really are one. Like you're walking independently around on planet Earth, so you think you're separate, but you're really not. You're just a leaf on the tree. And uh, and there's all these other leaves, and every one of them has a different perspective. Hence, their life experience is your blind spot, and you can learn from other people. And it's been helpful to me. Last night at the party, there was somebody who was extremely awkward. There's these two beautiful girls sitting at a table, and they're sharing a drink, and they're talking to each other. And this guy who you can just see, he doesn't have the social skills. He just walks up and stands behind one of them and just like stares at these two women because you can tell he's trying to be in the conversation. He's trying to show them he's interested. He's trying to figure out how he gets into their conversation so that he can get to know them and they can get to know him. And maybe he gets to go on a date with one of these ladies. Like, I don't know what a story is in his head. And the folks in our group started to notice it. And it was almost like, ha ha, chuckle, chuckle. Look at the weird guy over there. And I just said, like, like he came to that moment naturally too. Like he came to that moment, honestly, Um, his life was such that the only way he knows how to risk getting what he needs is to do what he's doing right now. He doesn't know a better way. And, uh, and it suddenly it kind of like silenced the crowd. Like I killed the moment for everybody, but it is real. Like when you start to see other humans as really coming to who they are, honestly, like you can also learn from all of this. And in our blind spots, as you, as you two ladies are pointing out, like I'm seeing Buddhism from a male perspective. And you guys said, I think last week, if, if the Buddha had been a female, there would be a ton of overlap, but there would be other truths that the Buddha taught that would be just as true as what the male Buddha did. And those truths would have been from a female perspective, and they would have been just as beautiful and just as wise and just as true. So we ought to, as you guys are pointing out, be open to a large chunk of blind spots that you don't even, you, you don't know what you don't know. And so the more you just sit and watch it and think about it and wrestle with it and listen and value other people's experience, even if you start on the front end as perceiving them as being not worthy of your time and energy and focus. Um, there's a lot to learn in this beautiful life, isn't there? I heard a wisdom teacher once say, um, you know, that the Buddha, he left, he left his wife and his son in order to um, find his path of enlightenment. And such was the nature of his suffering um, that he separated himself from his family. And so it would have been interesting to talk to Buddha's wife, who would have said, get off your enlightenment mountain and come down here and do the dishes (laughs) put some food on the table let's do something yes so i always thought that was really interesting that we never talk about buddha's wife and son who was left behind it might have been a shitty move huh it it might you know (laughs) it might have been it might have been a rough situation you know you can't judge but when we're talking about looking at other people's perspectives and blind spots do we have a blind spot for the wisdom of Buddha who sits in his sackcloth on the tops of mountains and people come to him for his wisdom um, when there's a wife at home struggling to ch- care for a child? And what would she say? What would she say about about um, compassion? What would she say? Um, and just to have someone say that and it's like, ooh, I never thought about that. That's a little bit of a blind spot I had because, oh, Buddha's so great. He sits on top of mountains. and. Um, 
So yes, once you start to realize that people do come to their lives, honestly, you can start to just have a lot of compassion and see your own blind spots, which is true liberation because now I am more free to love people. Like I shared with last time, I was able to kind of um, reconcile some issues I was having with my in-laws. And I just don't think I could have done that um, without knowing that they were truly doing the best that they could do and I could lead with compassion and I could put that bridge down and I could quiet my ego and and um and put something into the a relationship that was meaningful to me and so it does help you to lead with lead with compassion which gives you more freedom now I'm more free to love someone in my life and not feel bitter which would just feel really yucky um so there is more freedom when you are more able to love across boundaries. Someone has to write that book. Like one of you could write that book, right? The Buddha's the life, wife says the life and the story of the wife of uh, the Ooh. life and the story of the wife of the Buddha. Get off your high I've got, horse. I've got some fan fiction going right now. I mean, you know, like they said, the Buddha died from eating spoiled food. Maybe that wasn't an accident. Maybe there was some <laughs> woman going, Buddha, stop taking, telling all of our husbands to go to the monastery. Stop it. <laughs> there could be comedy in that book. Someone needs to write it. Mm, yeah, there could be a play, right? It could be a, a stage performance. The, the wife of the Buddha. So do you um, want to pull out some of the stories from the uh, the session? Yeah, which ones caught your eye? So the first one, he uh, someone comes to him. I referred to it earlier. Um, there was war in the time, and they asked uh, the person asked the Buddha whether they should go to war with their enemies there. And and these aren't the quote, but it's basically just is the Buddha said that if if the people meet in har- harmony, if they honor their seniors. Um, if they follow the teachings of their seniors and their wise ones, if they bring loving kindness, if they take care of their weakest members, if they come together with love and respect for one another, if they listen to one another with respect, if they practice and pres- preserve mindfulness and they care for the environment, that that people will prosper and not decline. Um, with the message that we need to look into the inner human nature of things to determine the cause of war. And my experience when I listened to that, I thought, what a wonderful community that would be to participate in that did all these things. And then I thought about different times in my life that I have belonged to and participated in communities that even with some degree of dysfunction had those elements. And it was wonderful. And I want to be a part of that, right? And I want to create that in my life. And I want to participate in communities that have that. And even in, like I said, even in communities that have a degree of dysfunction, to the degree that those elements exist, it's a wonderful thing. It it also seems like a reminder to me, too, that the opposite is true, which is if we humans don't get out of ego collectively more, then we're going to destroy this planet and each other. Because it will be the cause of war. Yeah. And dysfunction. Ego is the cause of war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's so that a, was it's a powerful man's game too, right? Like the 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 people in authority send the rest of us out to fight their battles and to kill each other over their beliefs and dogma and ideals. And yet if you could if you could stick all these people in a room, give them all uh I don't know magic mushrooms or something send you know send them off into some different place 
And it looks like we lost Brittany for a moment. Hopefully she'll come back here in a second, but send everybody off to a, a different consciousness to see the world differently. Uh, maybe it's meditation, maybe it's something else, but maybe people come back and they're willing to sit with each other and to accept their differences and try to, from a place of wisdom, work those out. There is a better way. It, it really isn't that hard. Just yeah. stop competing. I think that that is that is the truth. I mean, we've got a lot of problems in the world and we've got a lot of noble people who want to do to solve the world's big problems and and there's a fair amount of ego even in that pursuit you know that we see in the world one one of a, 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 an acquaintance of mine from high school I had heard uh, was involved in a, a group of people over in um, Israel where they were inviting Israeli and Palestinian youth to come play ultimate frisbee together on these mixed teams getting to know one another and just play together. And I just, when I heard about this program, I just felt like, you know what? Ultimate Frisbee could save the world if we can do this, you know, and, and get people to understand one another from a young age. How, how beautiful might that be? You know, um, I think we've got to think differently about how we go about solving the problems of the world. Yeah. There is a better way. So there were, so these stories are supposedly, happening 2,500 years ago, 500 years before Christ. And supposedly they were written down 100 to 200 years or so later, so maybe 300 years before Christ. But there's elements in these stories of the end of the Buddha's life that seem to have a connection or show up in in the in the stories attributed to to Jesus. So so the 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 Buddha is on this journey and he comes to water and he um, uh, is teaching people along the way, and people are following him. and And then, and then there's this character by the name of Mara that comes to tempt him. So the, that's this demonic celestial king that's associated with death, rebirth, and desire that that comes and and the Buddha recognizes him and calls him out. You know, and and um, so as a connection to Jesus's fasting, right and and the adversary come and tempt and tempting him, uh, part of the story. Um, and uh, and then Jesus comes along and he meets these different people in these different stages, and he meets this. Uh, or the Buddha comes and and comes across this courtesan Ambupali who shows up, and she invites the Buddha and his company to come to her pleasure grove where there are mangoes for for dinner. Where in the Jesus stories, there's stories of women that are considered lower class, you know, that or the lowest class, the the servant or the or uh, the the late attribution, probably not when the Gospels were written, but of Mary Magdalene being a courtesan type of thing. And in this story, the nobles and the royalties show up after Ambukali Ambupali and invite the Buddha to dine with them in their palace. And they offer Ambupali wealth and gold and so forth. And, and she refuses that to give up the chance to be with the Buddha. And the Buddha won't go meet with the nobles and the royalty because Ambupali asks the Buddha first to, to come to dinner. And, and I see connections in these with the stories of, of Jesus, Jesus spending time with the, the publicans and the, 
and the sinners and the and the and the physically or mentally impaired and so forth. Um, I, I just thought that this was beautiful that there are these different stories and Jack talks about how you know some people can read this as history, but because of the language that gets used, that's almost once upon a time and so it was and things like that to in, to be indicative that these are allegories or metaphors for our experiences in life and how it seems that these get pulled into the Jesus tradition in some ways. I think any any time where there's a story, you know, there's a story from a mystic that is mirroring, right, the stories of other mystics, that's when like, I perk up because there's going to be something here that's going to be really good. And isn't it so interesting that um, for both Buddha and Jesus, that they both meet the devil, right? And I think it's just speaking to this um, truth that to be completely whole, you have to meet the devil within. Um, and that I did a lot of that work with like Carl Jung kind of, um, you know, shadow work kind of stuff, but meeting my own personal devil, meeting the part of me that would be a, you know, Holocaust guard and enjoy it. Right. Meeting that part of yourself is really, really hard. Um, but you really can't be whole unless you can hold space for that side of yourself. And you see that story echoed from mystics, you know, in the, in the mythology around mystics around the world, that they'll often meet an embodied devil. And what does that tell us that you need? What, what does that tell us about the path? And then that other story that you shared, um, Anthony, was that they spend a lot of time with people of the lower class, whatever that class was, you know, lepers, always women because, you know, women. And um, especially, you know, lower class women, especially, especially, you know, sexual lower class kind of women. Um, and so there's something there too that that mystics around the world are speaking to. If they're spending time with, with um, the least of these, you know, what, is it, what does that tell us about the world? What does that tell us about people in power? What does that tell us about poor um, Anyway, so yeah, whenever those whenever those stories are echoing around the world, that's when we really looks like looks like she is frozen there frozen for a, a moment. little bit. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll echo what she's saying. That's that's the, the you know the the name for it. A name for it is the perennial tradition. You know, when you notice something coming up in a number of different places, you know, this is why I love the the work of Joseph Campbell. For anyone who has has not heard of that, there's actually a really great series of six interviews that Joseph Campbell did at the end of his life that speak to exactly what Brittany's talking to, and it's fascinating that he did on PBS with um, Bill Moyers. And it's so called, you can, it's called the Power of Myth. Yes, the Power of yeah. Myth, and you can you can go to. Um, mm-hmm. I know Amazon Prime has it. Yeah. It was on Netflix for a while, but it's gone. But um, it's a series of six interviews and absolutely fascinating and another shout out which is the book living buddha living christ which speaks to exactly what what anthony was talking to and all of the ways that that meets up it's by Thich Nhat han who's a really wonderful um buddhist teacher but anyway a couple resources will uh will some of will, will you guys each send me some of the thing like you're just mentioning books and things mm-hmm. what i'd like to do in this last episode is create a list of the stuff that the four of us have read and found impactful in helping people on this journey. 
and, uh, and, and being part of this practice, having this practice be part of your life. If you guys will send me the things that have been impactful to you and I will create a master list um, of, of those things so that people can kind of move forward. Not necessarily, you know, in the next 10 minutes or anything after we get off this call, but, but sometime in the next maybe 24 hours, 48 hours. And I'll include that. And uh, that way the folks who were touched, and I think there were a, a number of people who were touched by these conversations, they can now then go off and, because it really is a, for me, it's a hundred books. It's a hundred podcasts. It's a hundred interactions with people who just somehow nudged me to think differently and to move this way. And it really isn't any one thing. Uh, it's not just listening to Jack Cornfield. It's not just listening to these 12 sessions with you three beautiful minds. It really has been uh, years and years of, as you point, contemplative nature. Any other thoughts, any other stories in this last episode, anything else that you guys want to hit on before we, uh, before we end this and let you guys get off to your Sunday or second Saturday, as I like to say. Okay. Yeah, I, th- okay. I think it's I think it's worth listening to this and and then contemplating these different stories um, and the symbols of them. One of the reason why, at least for me in my personal experience, a very significant book that I read or li- I probably listened to it and read it both was um, Rob Bell's book "What Is the Bible." And he explained, Rob Bell, for background, Rob Bell was uh, an evangelical pastor of what would become the, the very largest, most successful megachurch. I think it was in Michigan or something like that. And then he went through a faith transition. And, and, and he wrote this book called What is the Bible? Um, and it has to do with understanding what the writers of the Bible intended it to be with poetry and symbolism and beauty. And he shares this experience of someone in his congregation coming up to him and explaining, you know, what you just shared about, you know, from the Hebrew Bible, that's not really what was going on there. And, And so in his book, What is the Bible? He goes through and explains how, as Richard Rohr would say, that that literalism is the lowest form of meaning and and the symbolism of what the writers were trying to express through the stories are the much that they are the depth and the degree of meaning in the story and that is why these sacred texts in, endure and as i was listening to this episode and and listening to jack uh, share with these stories about the end of the buddha's life that's what was connecting to my experience is that these stories are are symbols and poetry and and depth of meaning that connects to us and the lowest form of meaning would be to consider this as like documentary history of the last days of the buddha's life yeah there are much more enjoyable sandboxes to play in than literal taking myths literally and trying to figure out the rules and boundaries of how to get into heaven right mm-hmm. yeah i love it okay anything else cool you guys are just uh, i'm just i'm i know that this has been uh, a long project and I know that I'm I'm the one who got it started and and then now I, I kind of messaged you guys a lot of times on just Saturday nights and said okay I, I waited too long but you guys want to do this tomorrow and you guys have come along for the ride uh, and it's been so good and uh, I just I hope that the listeners again are getting value from this and seeing that there's a new way to live your life that feels alive somebody in a Facebook message just earlier this morning said they struggle with the word spiritual um, because as they've left religion, it feels like those two are interconnected. And that 
doing something spiritual seems like it's just another religion. But what I what I would say is that for me, spiritual doesn't involve supernatural. It doesn't involve magic. It involves being interested in how the world works and trying to be present and aware and wise about how I treat this moment. And that really does feel like the most spiritual thing that I could be doing. And I know that you guys share in that. And so thank you so much for uh, helping me take on this project. And I couldn't have done it without you. You guys are such beautiful minds. And uh, I think we conveyed Jack's ideas in a way that would be extremely helpful to this community. And so from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for staying on for all 12. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for doing this. You're a gentleman and a scholar putting all this stuff out into the world. We appreciate you. Yeah. Same with you. You're all doing your work in your sphere. uh, And I am honored to, to walk beside you on this path. So thank you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day guys. Enjoy second Saturday. (laughs) See ya. Bye. Bye.